Welcome, everybody, to Debt Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers from around the world. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to be talking all things horror for the next hour. I hope you can stay with us for the next hour. If you're joining us for the first time and want more information about our show, please visit us at DebtTalkLive.com. You can see all our upcoming guests, our prior guests, featured episodes, and a whole bunch more. If you want to be a part of our live audience, you can watch us simultaneously Monday through Friday every evening on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter simultaneously streaming to all those social media networks, plus more to come. want to welcome uh, some of our viewers. Of course, thank you to all our moderators. We have Cece Weezy joining us, Khaleesi. Tyler Durden is with us on Facebook. Sorry, YouTube. Sorry, Tyler. Colette and Lisa are joining us on Facebook. On Instagram, we have Jonathan is joining us. Uh, Lucas is with us. Gustavo, Hasing, welcome to all you guys. We have Carol all the way from Argentina. I would love to one day go to Buenos Aires. I would love to see Argentina. Thank you for joining us, Carol. It's always a pleasure to have you here with us. Uh, Lindsay Sparks is joining us on Facebook all the way from Canada, way up north. I uh, hope everyone is enjoying their day. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, like I said, depending on where you are. Uh, so it's the start of the weekend. Uh, don't forget, next week we have a slate of three guests, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. It's going to be a great three days, three fascinating interviews. So please tune in for those. So let's just get started. Uh, it's actually was kind of a slow news day today. It really was. But this headline right here was all over the place. Uh, I mean, I could have picked any one of over a dozen news outlets reporting this. Apparently, DC Comics is getting involved in the Conjuring universe. DC Horror will debut this June with a five-issue monthly limited series co-written by screenwriter David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, and New York Times bestselling author Rex Ogle. DC Horror. Now that sounds fascinating. Uh, DC Comics is ready to scare this summer with a new imprint. And, you know, called DC Horror. And if, I, I've been saying this a lot. Again, if you need any more proof that the horror genre is the top movie TV show genre out there right now, Look no further. Look no further than this. Uh, to make its launch even more terrifying, the 17 Plus imprint will debut a limited series connected to the Conjuring franchise. The Conjuring The Lover is a five issue monthly limited series that sets up New Line Cinema's next installment in the Conjuring franchise. The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, coming out June 4th. The series is co-written by The Conjuring 2 and The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, screenwriter David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick and New York Times bestselling author Rex Ogle. It will feature art by Gary Brown, main cover art by Bill Sankiewicz, uh, and a variant cover by Ryden Brown. Uh, series artist Gary Brown will also offer a 1 in 25 ratio variant cover. 
I have no idea about what a 1 in 25 ratio variant cover is, but it sounds really exciting. Now, from the early titles like House of Mystery and House of Secrets to the current series featuring Swamp Thing and John Constantine, Hellblazer, DC has always been the home of great horror comics and characters, said Marie uh, Javins, DC editor-in-chief, in a statement provided to The Hollywood Reporter. DC horror continues this tradition with new frightening tales from both well-known and new storytellers that will keep fans spooked and entertained. The series will follow Jessica, a college freshman returning to campus after winter break, who is grappling with anxieties over last semester's poor grades, facing a boy she wishes she never slept with, an undeniably unnerving feeling of being watched. Now, for Conjuring fans fascinated and terrified by the dreaded artifact room of Ed and Lorraine Warren, more stories await with this new series as well. The first issue will feature a backup story exploring the frightening origin of one of the items from the Warren's haunted artifact room, written by Dark Knight's death metal creator Scott Snyder, with art by Dennis Cowan. In the series' second issue, writer Chi Grayson and artist Juan Ferreira, another tale of a cursed item of the artifact room, is told. So that's the connection that they're doing uh, what DC is doing with the Conjuring universe. They are launching, of course, DC horror, which is exciting. And they're going to give us backstories to uh, a lot of the stuff that the Warrens keep in their artifact room, which is real, by the way. They um, uh, Both the Warrens have now passed away, but they do did do that room does exist where they've kept uh items supposedly haunted throughout their many many years of investigations so i don't know i would not want to go into that room i'm just happy to hear about it maybe see some pictures uh i've seen uh documentaries where they actually show you the real annabelle doll it looks nothing like the movie annabelle doll if you look at it it's just a harmless Reminds me of Raggedy Ann. It's like a Raggedy Ann doll. But this doll is, uh, they do have it in a glass case with a big sign on it that says, never open up. So, you know, they take that very, very seriously. Uh, let's see. Just looking at uh, Zoe on uh, Twitter. Loves the t-shirt. That's right. I'm wearing my Rick Michonne and Daryl t-shirt tonight. Hope you guys like it. It's been a while since I wore this. Uh, Lindsay Sparks says, I love how excited you get, Viz, when you read news articles. I, I find it fascinating to get a glimpse into other people's thinking. And the best one of the best ways to do that is through their writing. Uh, I have more than enough times pointed out errors in their writing, uh, which means they either did not do their research or they rush the article for deadlines or whatnot. But we've also read just as many great articles as well. So it just gives you an insight. I'm fascinated by other people's perspectives. 
I'm not just obsessed and think my opinion is the right opinion and nobody else's opinions matter. No, I'm of the mind that I want to hear everybody's different perspective, just to broaden my horizons at the very least. Uh, Khaleesi says that sounds awesome with the DC horror thing. Uh, Lindsay, uh, let's see, uh, Zoe is excited about this. Uh, Lindsay says, I love all your t-shirts. It's funny, all these t-shirts that I wear, and Lindsay, I'm saying this just because you brought it up. When uh, I didn't have these t-shirts when I did my first episode, which, by the way, guys, on, on Sunday, uh, I forgot to mention this, this Sunday, April 25th, is our one-year anniversary of episode one of Dead Talk Live. Uh, it sucks that it falls on a Sunday where we're not going to be broadcasting, but it, it, it is. It's one year already, April 25th, uh, and I've sort of lost count. Uh, we've had 162 episodes in season one, 137 episodes in season two, and this is our ninth episode of season three. If anyone can do some quick math, I know we're somewhere near 300. <laughs> we're somewhere around 300. Uh, Khaleesi writes, you couldn't pay me to enter the Warren's room. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, me neither. I would not go in there. I would definitely not go in there. So let's see what else we have. The horror movie that over 41% of people think went too far. Mm. Now, let's see what they say. While the horror genre is known for being scary, gory, very disturbing, leaving only the bravest of audiences to watch. There are some horror movies that just go too far. Sure, it's all magic, movie magic, not real, but if a movie's good enough, it draws you in and makes you feel like you're a part of the story. And for me, scary movies uh, do not involve any sort of blood, guts, gore, violence or any of that for me scary is all psychological so if they're talking about you know uh special effects that have gone too far i think we're well beyond that point even on television not even just movies in fact most of television today goes way beyond what we see in the movies some people like being scared and challenged to face the darkest parts of life but there are a few places you never want to go. In the past, certain movies have led audience members to get up and walk out, get sick or faint, and in a few rare cases, people have even had heart attacks while watching. Of course, bear in mind that in these instances, there are usually other factors that led to the health crisis, not just the scares. But people like to believe it anyway. When The Exorcist was released in 1973, it was believed to be one of the scariest movies ever made, with many people vomiting and fainting. And that still holds true today. Not the fainting and the vomiting, but it still being considered one of the scariest movies of all times. Even the New York Times reported rumors of heart attacks. But believe what you will, more recent films that are known for including intense, gory horror are the 2018 remake of Suspiria and Ari Aster's Hereditary. And Hereditary is a perfect example. 
no blood, guts, gore. The scary aspect that makes hereditary so terrifying, it's all psychological. It's all psychological. Emmy on Facebook writes, I'm really scared in evil spirits and possession. I'm right with you, Emmy. That's the one subgenre of horror that still gets me. It's uh, that can actually scare me is the paranormal slash supernatural. Depending on who you ask, some people call it supernatural. I like to use the word paranormal. Wanting to know for ourselves what horror movie truly crossed the lines into the unacceptable, we put out a poll and found an answer. And before I continue, I think we have an answer to this one when it comes to one of the biggest TV shows out there. For The Walking Dead, Season 7, Episode 1, crossed the line for a lot of fans. And we know this because viewership really went downhill after that episode. So, according to a poll in which 675 people across the country participated, the 2009 horror film The Human Centipede first sequence is the movie most people think went too far, with 41.04% of the vote. It's not too surprising that The Human Centipede came out on top, as the film really caused an uproar around the world when it was released, and The Human Centipede is referred to as body horror. In case you live under a rock and don't know what this movie is about, it's basically about a mad scientist who does an experiment to put humans together and form a centipede. Like the title says, feel free to imagine the rest on your own. Although the human centipede was the clear winner of the poll, 1980's Cannibal Holocaust came in second with 28.44%. Cannibal Holocaust is an Italian found footage movie about a documentary film crew that goes missing in the Amazon rainforest while filming local cannibal tribes. And this is 1980s. So everybody who thought that found footage was uh, invented in the 90s, no, it was done way before that. The rescue team only finds the cameras left by the original crew. Giving the title, you can guess what sort of footage is on the tapes. The movie is scary enough on its own, but it also caused a scandal due to rumors that several cameramen were actually killed on camera. Director Ruggiero Deodato was arrested and charged, but later cleared. You can get more information at cannibalholocaust.net. While the murders were simply rumors, Cannibal Holocaust does include actual violence against animals on screen, which is a felony in the United States as of 2019. Ah, boy. Well, it just shows how far we've come, uh, and in some ways. Other films included in the poll are worth mentioning. Of course, The Shining. I, I don't see The Shining going too far. It's a great, scary movie, uh, which got about 11% of the vote, along with Martyrs, Braindead, and Misery. Really? Misery? Uh, no. No. How many of you think misery went too far? 
Uh, it's an Oscar-winning movie. Uh, Kathy Bates won Best Actress. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't... Yeah, people who voted for Misery to be on this list uh, are probably really easily scared. No offense to you guys, but, you know, you probably went in to see Misery not expecting it to be a horror movie. Maybe you didn't know it was a Stephen King book. But yeah, Misery is definitely a horror movie. But did it go too far? Absolutely not. Not in my opinion. Uh, Colette writes, I've not seen The Centipede. Uh, <laughs> it's something to watch. Uh, I watched The Making of the Exorcist. It's creepy. I've seen that documentary as well. Uh, there is a documentary on The Making of the Exorcist with all the... Uh, uh, with uh, Friedkin, Blatty, uh, of course, the cast. It's really fascinating. If you guys want an inside look, I can't tell you exactly where to find it. It might even be available on YouTube. I don't know. But it is out there. And if you haven't watched and you're a big Exorcist fan and you want to see you know, them being interviewed, uh, I think this documentary was done in the 90s. So it's well over 20 years after the film was made. And they recount some of the stuff, some of the scenes they had to do, how it was filmed and whatnot. Uh, Lisa on Facebook writes, Misery was psychological, not a movie that went too far. That You are absolutely right. Now, this is from Fangoria. The plagues and pleasure of horror comedy. Breaking down horror's most misunderstood sub-genre. Now, I can enjoy a good horror comedy. And there have been some good ones. What comes immediately to mind is like Shaun of the Dead. And there are a lot of other movies as well. Uh, am I a huge fan? Do I only watch horror comedy just to lighten the mood? Absolutely not. Much like its uh, parent genre, the horror comedy has endured huge swaths of time as a beleaguered label despite constantly proving that there were throbbing veins of gold in those haunted hills. Uh, unlike prototypical horror films, however, ones purely concerned with foolery and ghoulery are much easier to dismiss. Horror has functioned as an effective cloak for commentary on everything from bigotry to the dissolution of the family unit to environmentalism and beyond since its inception. Uh, but you try to tell someone about Return of the Killer Tomatoes, hilarious in-film commercial, to fund the rest of the movie as a comment on capitalism, and they'll laugh you out of the pizzeria. You know what? They're not wrong. At the end of the day, if a horror comedy made you laugh and conjured up some spooky horror-adjacent vibes for you, it did a good job. Often that's about as much as the filmmakers set out to do. Here's where I, could, I rush back in to make a case, though. Even when they are hits, horror comedies are still derided or at best patted on the head then sent on their way. When the New York Times reviewed The Immaculate, The Return of the Living Dead in 1985, critic Stephen Holden noted it's by no means the ultimate horror movie uh, it inspires to be, aspires to be. So again, this guy who went to review it really did, just did not get what this movie was supposed to be about. 
Uh, the volume of stagey gore quickly reaches a point of diminishing returns, and rather than trying to sustain a mood of grim suspense, the writer-director Dan O'Bannon has conceived his cinematic cousin of Night of the Living Dead as a mordant punk comedy. Instead of noting how well these very intentional tones work together, it's dismissed as failing at something it never tried to be, a cut-and-dry horror flick. As a great phrase as modern punky, sorry, modern punk comedy is, it's not used here as a compliment, and that's ridiculous. Part of the issue is that as both genres and human conditions, horror and comedy, give off the misconception that they're easy to interpret and render without much effort. Ever gasp at a jump scare? Bam! Horror. Ever laugh at a dumb joke or a guy falling on his ass? Uh, Pad that out to 90 minutes and you've got yourself a motion picture. It's uh, easier to uh, mime than to mine. When it comes to digging into why things make people react the way they do, and that always bears out when it comes time to portray those reactions on screen. Comedies and horror films are often burdened by their authenticity being buried by a veneer of inauthenticity. Truly funny people and those who deeply respect and understand horror, and God forbid those who live with both in their hearts, are quick to use jokes and allegories to talk about real, painful topics. Hell, even when they're not, getting a genuine laugh out of someone who is of those warm little rare gifts of humanity, we have too far a few of. Making thousands of people laugh over years and years is monumental in its achievement, something that becomes its own heirloom, as we've now seen generations hand Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, classic, down their family tree. The craft in making these encourages genres work together should be enjoyed like it was candy, but it'd be nice if it was recognized as the artisanal imported stuff rather than handfuls of reformed corn syrup. Unfortunately, much, much, you know, before I continue, I truly believe, I mean, critics, movie critics out there, people who write movie reviews, they're not generally divided. Okay, you know, you go check out this movie. I think it should be, okay? If you're going to go out and write a review that people are going to read and you're not a true horror fan and you're going to watch a horror movie and you're going to write a review about it, critique it, and you're not a horror fan, it's not accurate. It's just not accurate. Unfortunately, much like canisters of trioxin-ridden bodies, we sure do have more than enough barrels of the cheap, crummy, contemptuous stuff. Every rose has its thorn, and for every what we do in the shadows, there's a vampire suck. But these films would be in the same section at the video store. Video stores don't exist anymore. But there shouldn't be a bigger gulf of difference between pitch-perfect, mockumentary, dry humor 
of the former and the rank, hateful reference glut of the Jason Friedberg and Aaron Seltzer venture. Most audiences aren't exactly eager to dig deeper into a subgenre once burned. However, and that's always been an uphill battle for this intrepid but uneven species of movie. Someone put off the excessively horny Stan Helsing may decide to skip the silly brilliance of Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Sure, they're only cheating themselves, but it's hard to blame them. The enormous success of 2000's Scream skewering scary movie, it made it it made over 10 times its $19 million budget theatrically worldwide. Prove that the right material at the right time can have a real pop culture impact. Unfortunately, it also begot a flock of increasingly uninspired sequels and helped encourage a village of straight-to-DVD-slash-video-on-demand pretenders that positively radiated derision for its viewers. The original scary movie also served as a fork in the road for the subgenre. The franchise always made its money back and then some, but as CGI became cheaper and more accessible and the box office returns served up ever-shrinking portions, it became clear that pouring tens of millions of dollars into these spoofs wasn't exactly necessary any longer. Looking at the opening of 2006 Scary Movie 4, its Saw takeoff is constructed exclusively of first draft jokes. But there is something undeniably compelling about the baffling trash pop culture thrill of seeing Dr. Phil and Shaquille O'Neal yell at each other in that iconic limb-surrendering room. <clears throat> Sorry. The bummer is that it doesn't deliver beyond the first few seconds of recognition. With mid-to-low-tier spoofs, not only is the opportunity there to really to get really subversive, but it's also pretty much a necessity for it to work as a comedy film. The marquee names and references do all the work of getting the butts into the seats. Now you can get weird to the audience when it's instead pulled back into being just a faint illusion of what's supposedly being wickedly lampooned, usually just the beats shared in the trailers so everyone will quote-unquote get it. It's letting the audience know that filmmakers slash studio committee think we're a bunch of jerk simpletons who wouldn't be able to handle a new airplane. For those who don't know, Airplane is a movie back in the early 80s, funny as hell, sketch comedy movie. Uh, I loved Airplane. I don't know how many of you even, I've totally forgot about Airplane, but being an aviation junkie, that was one of the funniest movies. Uh, let's see what you guys are saying. Uh, Lindsay agrees. Uh, Colette writes, Young Frankenstein was good. Young Frankenstein uh, was great. You know, the Mel Brooks movie, uh, that's a classic. It's a classic. 
Uh, so many quotable lines from that movie. Anyway, it's a long-ass article. Friedberg and Seltzer and their like aren't ripe for re-examination, and they never will be. Their parodies had their best buy date scratched off before they hit theaters. As time passes and their clunky pop culture references age completely out of public consciousness, there's an ever-thinking miasma of inscrutability covering the lazy gags that were once merely cynical, soulless, clunky, and unforgivably, unforgivably unfunny. They all play out like hostile space aliens putting on a hateful community theater production of every reason why our planet deserves to be destroyed right before they do it. We get the point. I'm not going to continue. They're right. Uh, horror comedies, having them all mashed together, is basically what the point of this article is, is doing the subgenre an injustice. Because placing a really corny horror comedy next to a classic like Return of the Living Dead, it it's just gives it the wrong perception, the public perception. So I want to welcome Otto Malloy, who just joined us on YouTube. Welcome, Otto. Uh, so let's keep just checking the time. And of course, we're 30 minutes in already. Uh, Netflix may have produced one of the worst horror movies ever made. Okay. Speaking of critics. The open house introduces far too many questions with absolutely no answers, and it all and all it does is make the viewer feel cheated. Netflix's history of its original horror movies is a rocky one at best. I don't agree with that line. Some of them are okay, some other ones have been well received, and others have instantly become solely for the internet to laugh at. Within the horror-loving community, there is a specific film that comes to mind as one of the very worst. The Open House was a big disappointment to everyone because it has an interesting premise and a decent setup, but the third act falls so flat it ruins the entire movie. I have not seen The Open House. I cannot agree nor disagree with this review. So, if anyone has and want to share their thoughts, please let us know. So, but obviously, at least this person didn't like the movie. Uh, let's see, trying to compress this as much as I could. Uh, here's a list. 12 near-perfect horror movies, according to Metacritic. Let's just quickly go down this list. Now, that, that's a pretty ballsy title. 12 near-perfect horror movies. 1960, Eyes Without a Face. 1930, King Kong. I never saw, well, I never saw any of the King Kong movies as horror, but I guess they are. I mean, what other genre would you put it in? So, let's see. The Birds, Alfred Hitchcock, 1963. Repulsion, 1965. Take a look at this picture. Uh, with the hands coming out of the wall. Uh, 
It's this is this is a Roman Polanski film, and this technique, of course, done with CGI today, is still is still being used today. Uh, let's continue. Frankenstein, the original, nineteen thirty one. Son of Saul, two thousand and fifteen. Uh, Wreckmeister Harmonies, two thousand. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, not the 1980s one, the original, 1956. Bride of Frankenstein, 1935. Don't Look Now, 1973. And, of course, the movie that's on uh, almost every horror list, Rosemary's Baby, 1968, starring Mia Farrow. And Psycho, Anthony Perkins, 1960, another Alfred Hitchcock movie. So there you guys have it. 12, their list of 12 near-perfect horror movies according to Metacritic. Uh, Lindsay has not seen Open House. Otto wants to know what's your favorite horror movie. I don't know. A favorite, like one above all else. I don't. I. I don't think I have one. I really don't. Uh, how many of you guys seen the new King Kong versus Godzilla on HBO Max? Um, so I'm gonna admit it. I have not yet watched it. I'm going to here very soon. Uh, I have been so busy. Uh, I have not had a chance to watch this film, but I'm going to no later than this weekend. But this article references uh, horror movie references that are supposedly in Godzilla vs. Kong. We get it. You were so enthralled by the Kaiju monster on monster action in Godzilla vs. Kong, and who wouldn't be with all those titans and the amazing climactic battle between Kong, Godzilla, and Mega Godzilla? What you totally missed this reference to a horror movie that was subtly placed into the film by director Adam Wingard. That's okay. That's what Reddit is for. Uh, Wingard set us all straight, pointing out there is a little pop culture tribute in one part of the film that no one has been talking about yet. The scene in question takes place about halfway through the movie, at just about the one-hour mark, the humans have let Kong loose in the gravity-defying land known as Hollow Earth, and he quickly comes into contact with, with some titan-sized Denzians and his new surroundings, including Nozuki. You remember Nozuki, or Warbot, goes after the, hum the humans in the airship, but Kong grabs it by the tail and slams it on the ground before swinging it around to hit another one of its kind. Then Nozuki attacks Kong, wrapping himself around the giant ape. The humans let loose some projectiles to help Kong, and Kong is able to down his nemesis, tear off Nozuki's head, and drink the blood from his skull. That sounds awesome. Turns out that moment recalls a scene from a cult favorite movie you might have seen. Uh, Wingard posted in the AMA the big reference that I haven't seen anyone pick up on 
is when Kong folds up and kills Nazuki that was inspired by the holodeck murder scene in Jason X. Wow. When Jason picks up the camper in their sleeping bag and smashes them around. That is one of Jason's best kills in Jason X. Uh, the movie was whatever. But uh, if you go through the many kills that Jason X has. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys remember that scene. A guy sleeping in his sleeping bag gets picked up. And just the sleeping bag itself just gets bashed up against the tree multiple times. Uh, one of Jason's best kills, my opinion. Uh, Want to welcome SR from Brazil. Thank you for joining us on Instagram. Uh, Otto says, have you watched Sinos? Nope, I don't think I have. Uh, Philip Thompson writes, it was good. So, let's see what else we got. We got, let's see, get rid of these ads. Uh, black trauma porn. Them and the danger of Jordan Pele imitators. The true horror of the superficial Amazon show lies in, the bombard in bombarding the audience with scenes of gratuitous racist violence without having anything interesting to say. Them is a great show. Uh, apparently, this person doesn't like it. There is an inherently difficulty. There is an inherent difficulty in producing thoughtful art that comments sensitively on racial violence. Now, hold on a second. How do you comment sensitively on racial violence? I guess this person did not like the fact that them actually dished it up the way it was like back in 1958 America. And, well, I'm sorry it offends them, but I applaud the filmmakers for giving us them and in the manner in which they gave it to us. Dishing up that vicious bigotry as entertainment. This uh, They just totally don't get it. In a 2020 Art in America essay, the academic Zoe Samduzi, Samduzi, I butchered that, wrote, where blackness is in vogue and atrocity images are a hot commodity, it becomes difficult to produce a commentary or satire that does not read almost identically to the quotidian flaw, flows of violence. The art is, in essence, a continuation of the violence it seeks to represent. But Amazon Studios series Them has no time for such complexity. Its creators, less like artists struggling to strike a delicate balance between aesthetic, political, and welfare considerations and more like sadomasochists. A horror anthology was started with a 10-episode run earlier this month simply indulges in cheap, cheaply exhibiting extremes of black suffering. It is just the latest effort in what is being described as, quote, the race horror genre. No. Next. That's all I'm going to waste time on that. 
Uh, Khaleesi writes, yep, I got mad and wanted to throw things, but them was a great series. And that's exactly what the show was supposed to invoke in you. You're supposed to get angry uh, because that's pretty much how it was. Uh, and uh, I would love to sit here and say that's behind us. We're still working on it. That's the best I can say. Uh, so anyway, I'm just reading over some of the chats. Hey, Aiden85 is back with us on Instagram. Yeah, Aiden, it has been a minute. It's good to see you back on the show, man. Thanks for coming back. Uh, so let's see. Uh, every Chloe Grace Moretz horror movie remake. Uh, Chloe Grace was uh, Carrie. You probably know her best from that. In the uh, Carrie 2013 remake. Uh, let's just go see. She was in 2005, the Amityville Horror remake. The Eye, 2008. Let Me In, 2010. Dark Shadows, 2012. Uh, of course, Carrie, that I just mentioned. She played Carrie in 2013. Suspiria, which we just mentioned in a previous article. Uh, 2018. And that's it. That's those are the 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 horror remakes that she has been in. Uh, here's a good one: ten great horror movies with incredibly simple plots. Let's see this list. Number ten: The Mummy. All right, 1932. Nine: Psycho. Ooh, you know the plot of Psycho, especially 1960, and it was tackling an issue. With what was then considered, I guess, split personality. Now we know it as dissociative identity disorder. I uh, would not call this a simple plot. Let's see what it says. We all go a little mad sometimes, although it was inspired by the twists and turns of Robert Bloch's original novel. The classic slasher Psycho really boils down to one basic plot line. A woman goes missing after a fateful encounter at an unassuming roadside motel. And that is way oversimplifying it. Number eight, When a Stranger Calls, both 1979 and the 2006 version. Number seven, Open Water, 2003. Jaws. All right, it's about a shark. I mean, yeah, I can kind of see that. Great movie, but, you know, it's about a shark. A big-ass shark. Number five, Hellfest, 2018. Uh, number four, Friday the 13th. Oversimplified? I don't know about that. Uh, the big reveal at the end, on uh, when we find out who the killer is, Jason's mom. Uh you know, they didn't know if this was going to be just a one-off movie. Little did they know that her son would end up going to space many years later. But I don't know if I would put this as an oversimplified plot. 2008 is very popular, The Strangers. Number two is Hush, 2016. Number one, wow. As an oversimplified plot, they picked... The 1978 original 
Halloween. Ooh, that's tough. If you're going to put Halloween in there, and they did Friday the 13th, you can do that with every slasher movie that came out in the late 70s and early 80s. Halloween had a good story to it, you know, about a little kid murdering his 16-year-old sister, and then, of course, him being institutionalized 15 years later, escaping from the sanitarium, coming back to his hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois. And, uh, you know, in the second movie, we find out that Jamie Lee Curtis is, is his sister, the original sequel. If you take the 2018 Halloween, that whole sister reference is removed. Michael Myers is not Laurie Strode's brother. They are not related in any way, shape, or form. So that brings you back to the original film. Why did Michael Myers get so fixated on Laurie Strode? My theory on that is when he went back to his house after he escaped back in Haddonfield, remember it was Laurie Strode because her dad uh, was a real estate agent and she was dropping off the keys to the Myers house. And if you remember that scene, that's when Michael Myers first sees her. Now, we don't know why, but from that moment on, Michael Myers becomes obsessed with Laurie Strode. And that whole night is his planned action on how to get to Laurie. You know, he kills all of her friends. And of course, 1978, Jamie Lee Curtis, wonderful. She is the last girl standing. So that's my theory as to why Michael Myers uh, goes after Laurie Strode if we are to completely disregard the fact that she is his sister, which is what the 2018 version of Halloween wants us to believe. Now, 25 best horror movies on HBO Max. We don't really have a lot of time on this. I don't think I'm, I'm not going to go through this list. It's 25 movies. If you have HBO Max, you can go browse. There are a lot of great movies. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Warner Brother movies for the rest of this year are being released simultaneously to limited theaters and to HBO Max simultaneously. And they're only going to be on HBO Max for 30 days. And then they're getting pulled and coming to video on demand, you know, all other video on demand soon after. So I think that's, the, oh, the, we got more stuff. All right, we're going to hold this on for another date. Uh, the next one is the, the best horror movies of 2021. Considering that it's still the end of April, it's just a top 10 list. Uh, March 12, we, uh, we got Honeydew, that's number 10. Nine is the horror comedy. We talked about horror comedies a little bit earlier. Slacks about the possessed genes. It's a, it's a great movie. It's hysterical. Uh, number eight, another movie. Another good movie that's getting great attention is Willy's Wonderland. Uh, number seven, The Stylist, March 1st. Number six, Psycho Gorman, January 22nd. Prisoners of Ghostland has not been released yet. This is with Nicolas Cage. 
this is a big uh, awaited movie. It is done by a Japanese master horror maker. And this is his first American film. His name is Sion Sono. Uh, and there is still no release date for this movie. Uh, I don't know why it's being delayed. If it's some kind of legal thing or whatnot. But anyway, number four. The Queen of Black Magic, January 29th. Uh, number three. The Mentor, March 2nd. Number two. Blood Thirsty. Awesome. Bloodthirsty is being got released today. Monday we are having the star of the movie, or one of the stars of the movie, uh, Greg Brike, is going to be here talking about this movie. So if you want to watch, uh, you know, if you're going to tune in on Monday and hear the interview about Bloodthirsty. I watched this movie, and it's, uh, they gave me, I want to thank them, they gave me a screener link the other day for me and my team so we can watch it before the interview. Uh, amazing, classic, go back to the days of the were good old werewolf movies, but with a very different twist. So, I highly recommend this, and as you can see right here, the release date, April 23rd, that is today. Number one on the list great movie in fact i started watching this again last night saint maud is the number one movie got released on january 29th if you're in the united states as of right now you could only watch saint maud if you have epics whether it's through your cable satellite or you pay for their uh, streaming service epics is the only place you can watch saint maud next month i know for we read yesterday it is coming out on Hulu and I believe Amazon. So, another must watch right there. So, let's see. All right, we're going to close this down for right now. We're going to talk a little bit about our topic, which we don't have much time in today. But, you know, the conversations that we had today fit very nicely in line with uh, our topic for today which is really about horror uh, psychological thrillers. As I stated earlier, psychological thrillers is what I consider scary. All right? Blood, guts, and gore does not scare me. Am I entertained watching it? Of course. Absolutely. I'd be lying if I said otherwise. But a good psychological horror flick that has you on the edge of your seat for me, scary, entertaining, all wrapped in one. Now, let's go through a list of some of the ones that, you know, we have picked as some of the greatest psychological horror movies. And why not? We read everybody else's list. Let's read Dead Talks Live's list. Silence of the Lambs. Not, I don't think anybody can argue with that one. Directed by Jonathan Demme, Jodie Foster... Of course, um, Anthony Hopkins, best actor, actress. I mean, just the awards. It broke all sorts of boundaries and records. Now, seven, Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman. When it comes to psychological thriller slash horror, seven, for me, is has to be in the top three. I just absolutely love this movie, and I can watch it over and over again. 
Uh, Colette writes, uh, Colette enjoyed Cape Fear, Robert De Niro, another great movie, Cape Fear. Um, Zoe wants to know how many streaming services do I subscribe to? That's a great question. Uh, because of the nature of the job here, I subscribe to a lot of them. Uh, Amazon, Shutter, uh, Hulu, HBO Max, uh, Netflix, obviously. I've got a lot of movies on Vudu that I'm, uh, I can watch. Uh, basically all the big ones, you know, uh, sort of have to have it. Vertigo, Alfred Hitchcock. That's another great psychological horror. Uh, it's one of his classic masterpieces. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it. It is black and white, just like a, a lot of Hitchcock movies are. Uh, considered one of the greatest movies, let alone thrill thrillers of all time. And it's funny how I watch Vertigo. I have not, I never saw Vertigo, uh, until many years ago, my wife had seen it. And this is a role reversal. My wife does not like to watch anything that's spooky or anywhere near the horror realm. But she had seen Vertigo and just loved it. And it was because of her that I watched it. And it was a great movie. Uh, Split. Okay, Split. Um, that's uh, M. Night Shyamalan's return to his Unbreakable Universe deals with DID, with his, which is dissociative identity dis disorder, adding a layer of unpredictability, a mass, a setting of carnage. Uh, also, the supernatural bend makes the movie more frightening. We also have The Invisible Man, uh, the original, original man, and the remake was amazing as well. Great spin. If you want to find out how to make a great remake of a movie, just watch the remake of The Invisible Man. It will give you how to take a classic story and just make just enough changes to it to really revitalize it, give it its own identity, but also hold true to the original story in a lot of ways. Uh, Lindsay Sparks writes, Split was brilliant. I love Split. I loved Glass. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's Shyamalan's combination of two different movies. You had uh, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, and then you take the uh, the the split personality and the horde. You combine them all together uh, brilliantly, and you come up with this amazing film. So, you know. It is a sequel, and it's a sequel to two different movies. So that is unique in itself right there. So if you haven't watched it, you got to watch it. You got to start from the beginning, see the first two movies, and, you know, and then also watch Split. So anyway, guys, that's pretty much all the time that we have for today. This hour flies by, as it always does. It's been an honor and a treat to talk to you guys uh, I'll be back on the air with you guys on Monday again. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Lindsay writes, uh, James McAvoy was amazing. James McAvoy is a brilliant actor. Uh, from his role as Professor X in the X-Men movie to Split, just a brilliant, 
brilliant actor, you know? Uh, and you combine that with Samuel Jackson, another brilliant actor, Bruce Willis, amazing. You get it. I mean, you got all the ingredients for an amazing film right there. Anyway, guys, for more information, uh, please go to our website, deadtalklive.com. If you want to be a part of our live audience, you can tune in Monday through Friday, um, 9.30 p.m. Eastern on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. We would love for you guys to come join us during our live shows, be a part of the uh, chat. It's an interactive show. I want to talk to you. I love hearing your thoughts and your comments. I love reading them live on the air. Uh, go to our website. Go any one of those. Go to any one of those platforms to watch any one of our interviews or prior episodes. I'll be back with you guys on Monday. Everyone have a great weekend. And until Monday, where our guest is going to be Greg Breich. Please don't miss it. Watch Bloodthirsty. Until Monday, guys. Stay walking.